Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A funny taste in music with Andrew Bird. Hello, welcome to A Funny Taste in Music. Uh, it's a podcast uh, talking to comedians about music, and this one is Ben Norris, a comedian I've known since I started. He was one of them where I used to do the backyard because it was the first gig that booked me regularly for twenties. Brilliant comedy club, East London, Bethnal Green backyard, go to it. And uh, I'd be on first. I'd be young and I was single and drunk a lot, so I'd stay at the end and watch the closing act, which you should do when you're a new comedian, and it was people like Mickey Flanagan, Alan Cochran, and Ben Norris was always one, and I always thought he was brilliant. And he has now released an album. He's done a an album of comedy songs. Now, before you start thinking it's just going to be a couple of jokes with an acoustic guitar, that's what I thought. It's really, really brilliant, catchy tunes. And he's someone I've known for a long time. It's a brilliant, brilliant album. It's called Moral Vacuum, Ben Norris. You can get it on his website, bennorris.co.uk. And I've always really liked him and thought, I bet he knows a lot about music, so I've got to get him on. And he does know a lot because he's made some. Um, Right, so let's get into it. Uh, Now, I should say as well, before we got cracking, we're going to hopefully one day release a bonus podcast of the 45 minutes to an hour that was the technical shit show of Ben trying to set up his laptop. It weren't having it, weren't having Chrome. I don't understand any of it. I'm just glad it was him. That was the pain in the ass for once, not me. Uh, I'm sure he won't mind me saying that. Uh, so that took a while to set up, but it sounds all right. Producer Paul has had a mare putting it together probably, but he's done a wonderful job. And now good news is that there's going to be a Spotify playlist that's going to accompany this. So all the songs we kind of mention in passing where you might think, oh, yeah, I might listen to that. And you know you have to rewind to the bit in the podcast, try and find it. Well, the songs are going to be, uh, they're going to be, you can just go to Spotify, there'll be a link and you'll be able to go and listen to those songs. It'll be easy. So that would be good. So that's going to be with this. So coming up very shortly is my chat with Ben Norris. A funny taste in music. The interview next. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, ready to go. <clears throat> well, it only took us 45 minutes. <laughs> it's not bad. I think now we should definitely make sure the podcast is just shorter than how long it took. <laughs> yeah. To get ready. So we're aiming for 44 minutes. Cool. <laughs> um, you know, I've got very little idea of what you're even going to talk to me about. Yeah. I know. Is, that, is that part of the pleasure? I think no, so, prep. yeah. Okay. Should I? Well, I don't know. Do other, do other podcasts prep? None that I've been involved with. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm basing this purely on when I did a podcast with Rich and I didn't even know yeah. he'd press record. Ah, uh, that's a secret weapon. Yeah, no, I won't fall for that again. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, you don't, you don't really need to know. Um, it's just chat about music, right? I thought because you know, you know, when you're, uh, you know, when you're on a car journey with comedians. I remember that. Just, yeah, 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 it was good, wasn't it? We uh, just talk about music. It's kind of that, but it's slightly different um, with you. Because you've you've actually done an album, so you've got a foot in both camps. I wanted to talk about comedians talking about music, but you've actually done an album, so you're you're pretty much a musician, aren't you? Well, I think musician would be pushing it, but um, no, no, yeah, yeah, I've made oh, I've some heard music. your album because, well, if for the people who haven't haven't heard your album, I got your because I because I've gigged with you loads and loads when I first started, you always headlining and you sometimes you did a rap. You did the uh the rap I really liked, the colour is beige. But you know, from that yes. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't go, well he's definitely a musician. But I didn't I didn't know how much stuff you've written. Then I saw you at the um cutting edge and you did America's Mental and I love that yeah. immediately the f- sort of flashy sort of punky guitar. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't know you'd written loads of others. I just thought you were going to just just do like you know, the odd song every now and again. And then I got your album, and I thought it would be you know like funny songs with an acoustic acoustic guitar. That would sort of be about you know, there'd be there'd be funny punchlines, acoustic guitar. But I didn't know it was going to be like really really catchy proper pop tunes, and really funny. Yeah. I blummin' loved it. I'm not just saying that. Thanks, I've said man. it to other people when you weren't there and it wasn't recorded. Right, oh. so I properly love it. But what? So what made you dis- What? So what made you do the album? Why did you decide to do it? Well, um, I I'd, I think I'd left music behind uh, many years ago because 
There was a point in my life in my mid-twenties where I was an amateur musician and an amateur comedian and a professional printer. And uh, I had to make some big decisions. And I was in a band playing bass guitar at the time. I'd, I'd been in bands, you know, since I was a teenager. And um, uh, I think, you know, so I used to write little punk songs when I was 16 and and... Uh, I'd written a few kind of uh, songs over the years, but nothing that had troubled the charts or <laughs> indeed, uh, you know, a, a record company. Um, I, I was in a band with my cousin, Jamie, who actually produced my album. And we were, so we were in a band called Stigmata Club when we were young punk rockers. And we did, uh, you know, we, we did hundreds of gigs and we re- recorded lots of demo tapes, but we never got a record deal. So we kind of gave it up. And then I was in a band with another cousin uh, called Skipper and I was playing bass guitar for them when I'd started doing stand-up as an open spot. So this is early 90s. And um, they threw me out of the band because they thought I wasn't committed enough to the band or something. And that was when the decision was made that I would pursue comedy. So I kind of put music completely on the back burner and and just you know comedy's all consuming isn't it andrew once you yeah. get into it it's it's all you think about yeah so i just forgot that i was into music i you know i'd always listen to music but i forgot that i liked to play it and i hung the bass on the wall and and didn't think about it literally for 15 years or something and then one weekend i was doing the manchester comedy store and i was you know i was there for 3 days and you get a bit bored in the hotel don't you as a as an adult yeah and um I walked into a music shop and saw this really cute little guitar. It was a Gretsch Jim Dandy, which is a very retro 50s looking guitar and acoustic. And I just, and it was surprisingly cheap. It looked like a guitar that would cost three or 400 pounds and it was 160 pounds or something. And I just bought it just on a complete whim, went back to the hotel room and sat twiddling around with chords and thinking of little funny ideas and just songs started coming out of me, you know, just silly ideas for songs. And they were just for my own amusement. I thought that'll do. And because I had started doing the cutting edge that you mentioned uh, at the comedy store, which is the Tuesday night topical show, they always had one of the acts doing a, a few songs as part of the yeah. show. And, and I told John, who, who was the producer of the show, that I'd written a couple of comedy songs and he was very mm-hmm. keen to give me a go. So I started doing a couple of these songs at the cutting edge and that was it. I was completely hooked on after 26 years of being a stand-up comic uh, with very, you know, with the one or two skirmishes into musical things like the, the comedy rap that you mentioned. Yeah. And many years ago I used to do a parody of Beetle Bum by Blur and I changed the lyrics in a very amusing way. Uh, but other than that, I hadn't done music in my act much. And suddenly I had these, this other, this other sort of um, outlet and I, and, and that was it. I just started writing comedy songs. And two years later I had a pile of these songs and my cousin, Jamie, who had remained a musician and had a lovely recording studio. He said, let's do, let's record an album and do it properly. So that's why it sounds so good because, you know, I went in with my little simple songs with an acoustic guitar and he said, let's record the voice and the guitar and then let's stick drums and keyboards and bass and uh, and everything else on top and see if we can't make it sound like a real album. And I think that's 
I think that's, we bloody uh, well that's did what that. We did. Yeah. That's, that was quite a long answer to the first a great, short That's question. a proper like these are the kind of things when I listen to interviews with musicians, I love them stories. Like that Noel Gallagher got given a guitar by um John Squires and he just written um just picked it up and um slide away, just come out straight away. That sounded like that. You got the guitar, you're in a hotel room, and just a load of funny songs came out. But you, yeah, because the, the, the cutting edge, I imagine it wasn't there wasn't too much pressure there to just just dick about it with the comic. You could really work them all in there, I imagine. Yes, although on the night I always got terrible nerves because it is a different. It's a. You, I suddenly realised that performing as soon as you start a song with a guitar, the audience focus on you in a in a way that is oh, absolutely yeah. the scrutiny is terrifying. Um, in a way that you don't feel with stand-up, it's 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 weird. And I obviously I was very familiar with you know words flowing out of my mouth, sometimes pre-rehearsed, sometimes improvised, and how an audience responds to the to words. But as soon as you say right, this is a song and it's called um, America's Mental or whatever, that they just they they're staring at your fingers, they're seeing what you how's, what how you're playing, they're listening to you. If, is your voice going to crack? It, 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 it's just, there's a level of scrutiny that's, or certainly you perceive that there is, that feels quite scary. So it took me a while to get over my, a new kind of nerves to do with, am I going to be good enough at playing these chords? And and re- also remembering all the words. That's, you know, I'm quite elderly now, so it's quite terrifying remembering all the all the lyrics, even though you, you wrote them. I didn't think of that. So it was kind of like you were a kind of, you know, proper confident all the way through as a stand-up, and then you became like an open spot in the middle as you started music. Yeah, and that's that's what I loved about it as well, because music um, uses a very different part of your creative brain. So, uh, you know, I was really enjoying the novelty of, of opening up this other side of my synapses or whatever, and, and you know, there's... That, that I think all comics have a touch of autism and yeah. I think, uh, you know, comedy music taps right into that kind of... Um, Does it? F- yeah, what, I think so. Way? That kind of... Well, in that... Well, for a start, the as soon as you start rhyming, yeah. you know, your head spins with it. You know, you come up with the, the, line, the word at the end of the first line and you get an instinct that there's a funny song here and then your brain just just starts going through a Rolodex of amusing possibilities that also rhyme uh, with the first word at the end of the first line. You know, I'm a big fan of Neil Hannon, you know, the divine comedy. And yeah. he uh, obviously, he, he writes a lot of serious music. He writes some fairly um, comical music as well, but um, he's the master of the, of the well-turned phrase and really good at finding slightly less obvious rhymes, uh, and and that thing of sticking it in with a musical, the meter of the beat of you know, it's that there's something going on there where you know a sing, so, singer songwriter can hit that rhythmic percussive uh, 
thing <laughs> with yeah i know um, you mean as, I, as you I, see i if i could do this with music it would be flowing straight out but just words I, i'm all over I, the place i think the same thing with um i don't think the same thing a bit with alex turner the Arctic monkeys he has that where it's not the normal yeah. rhymes and the normal word and um uh elbow i think guy garvey of elbows like you wouldn't think of putting those that there and, and some like proper observations is i've always thought that with music and you're in a good place to answer where you, because uh, it's hard enough writing stand up, let alone getting it to rhyme. You know <laughs> what I mean? So, and I've always thought, because I think there's some similar things with writing music. They must have started, it starts off with just like a way two chords go together and a song comes out of that. And a bit of material comes out of you've noticed the way someone says something or you notice just the way a phrase sounds and that will stick in your head for about four years and finally you'll get a joke out of it. How, what, how does it work when you write a comedy song? Do you start well, with I think, just yeah, that one the on the difference. album that you remember writing that you that came out of just an idea or just the chords? Oh, so honestly, so many of them come out of you know it's ten a.m. I've just had a coffee, and I quite often I'm I'm most productive on that front in the mornings. I have a coffee and put my guitar on my lap and I just, it, it's sort of like relaxation therapy, but it's also ideas just seem to pop out of my head at that time. And I was um, thinking about this thing. I remember reading about once a lot of creative people, a lot of writers do it, do this discipline called the morning papers where they get up um, first that, thing yeah. and, and they just get a big pad of paper and a pen and they start writing just just anything that comes straight, a stream of consciousness that comes out of their head. And a lot of it's just rubbish, but good stuff pops out as well because your brain is processing kind of, uh, you know, your dreams and, and all the subconscious stuff that happens uh, when we're asleep. So uh, I've never done that <clears throat> with that level of discipline, but I do find something similar will happen uh, in the mornings if I just pick the guitar up and, and sit and twiddle. Uh, this morning, uh, I started writing a song. Um, I just had the idea of writing a song about someone who was a bad painter. Because uh, <laughs> um, I just think bad painter is a good title. Um, and it just just came out, you know, just this just started coming out. It was pretty funny. I mean, it, it's going to need a bit of work, but, um, you know, what, somebody... What have, you got, what have you got so far of it then, of the song? What um well, I've got, I've sort of got um, enough chords for a verse and a chorus, and uh, and a, and a, the opening lyrics, which I wrote. I always write them straight into the computer these days, in case I forget them. Yeah. Uh, so the lyrics are: You painted a picture of Helen. It didn't look like her. You painted a picture <laughs> of Rose. Not even close. You painted a picture of the Pope. I thought it was an artichoke. You painted a picture of me. I looked like I'd been found dead face down in the sea because you're a bad painter i guess you might get better later but you're a bad painter right now <laughs> so that's well, you wrote that this morning <clears throat> i wrote that this morning yeah i've done nothing this morning oh <laughs> that, um, that i like the sound of that that uh because when you're just strumming notes on a guitar there's less pressure isn't there and you feel like you're doing something and your mind can wonder probably a bit more but um yeah, that that is the morning pages, isn't it? Just strumming on a guitar. Yeah, and come because and, I was uh, thinking the, you know, the a lot of my stand up comes out of 
improv, I get an idea, but I know it's not long enough. You know, it's like not enough for a bit. So I just yeah. start talking about it on stage and then adrenaline kicks in and I think of something else in the moment if I'm having a good night. And then I come off stage and try and remember to write that down. And bit by bit, the piece develops because, my, you know, I haven't got a disciplined brain, but it does seem to work well in the moment. So I realised that writing, you know, writing songs I find much easier, actually, than writing stand-up because there's a, the format of a song, the verse-chorus, verse-chorus thing, suits yeah. my sort of um, semi-autistic oh. brain, I think. Oh, there's sort of like, there's kind yeah. of a template there for you to rein you in a bit. Yeah, yeah, and that joy of, you know, tr trying to find suitable words that, that not only seem to be the perfect thing to say, but also rhyme with the word, the word at the end of the previous line. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. I like all that stuff, and especially if you can do it um, unjarringly, if that's a word. I know what I you mean in a song yeah. where it, it just flows with a melody. Yes, and you don't think, oh, he's just put that in there because it rhymes with bucket, you know. Not many things do. <laughs> well, it must have been tempting. I like, well, that's what yeah. I like a lot. Some of my favourite bits in your album uh, is the bits where there's a very obvious rhyme and then you don't do it. Ah. That, there's a bit that every time fills me with joy. The I think the Jack White song. Meet oh, me at, you, your yeah. song about Jack White wanting to play your guitar and the bit, mm -hmm. meet me at the front, Jack White seems determined to make me look a bad, bad guitarist. guitarist. <laughs> oh, every time I get this little tingle of excitement, here it comes, here it comes, there it is, there it is. Bloody love that. Every, your album, oh, if thanks, you mate. read your album, uh, the track titles, it's that Ducks, Jenny, Librails, America's Mental, Nine Little Boxes, Older with Dignity, Robot Sex Doll, Jack White, Dogs, Pope, Fight the Police, Dick Pick. It sounds like a set list for <laughs> closing the Comedy Store Late Show. But, um, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, it sounds like the, the, your crib notes for, for, for gags, yeah. A lot, yeah I, I mean, I was pleased Jack with White that. Song. I was pleased with the, the fact that if you look down those song titles, that's you just you don't have to know much about me or even what, the album is you would it would pique your interest wouldn't it at the very least oh yeah think, what a what a weird group of song titles that is <laughs> yeah god what, i didn't think what, like that good point what can yeah. this be what can this be uh yeah, you'd so, need to uh, listen to a song that goes jack white dogs pope fight the police dick <laughs> pick um my because yeah. i i listened to i got your album straight away i can't i i'll be honest i kind of when a comedian i like does something i feel that we should like, because comedy, you've never any ever got anything really to show for it. So the fact that you've got recorded something and got something to show for something is an achievement in itself, I always think. So I always think, well, I've got to buy it. Someone's written a book. A comedian's written a book. I think well, I should support them and buy it. So I bought your album out of, uh, I know it'll be funny. I know it'll be good. I want to, I should buy it, support a fellow comedian. I didn't, re honestly, I didn't think I'd love it as much as I did. And I texted you straight away when I listened to it because, you, uh, you know, and my wife sent you a video, videoing my children listening to one of your songs because I kept listening to it in the car and I forgot some of the bits in it. And my two kids are in the back, one's six, one's nine, and they absolutely love the dog song about, 
I mean, it's got a bit about. Uh, it's basically a, a thing I've always that you've probably it probably that song. I imagine it started from the observation of dog walkers, what weird people they are, stood around. And now I've become one of them because I've got a dog and I've, I've become the loser that I used to slag off. Just all stood <laughs> around talking about nothing with your f- your doggy treat bag on your front. But the bit uh, of your doggy uh, sniffing, was it sniffing? Uh, sniff each other's butts. And lick each other's nuts. That yeah. bit. For a six-year-old <laughs> and a nine-year-old, you can imagine how much yeah. they enjoyed that. We must have played it about 12 times in the car and then I had to pick up his mate for football to do the football run and they were saying put that song on put that song on I'll put it on and they're all <laughs> laughing their heads off and singing about licking nuts and sniffing butts and stuff <laughs> to the point to the point when I dropped him off I had to knock on the door and explain to his mum why he might be singing that and apologise <laughs> to his mum that's was fine with it I mean the the album is full of swears um, and uh, you know because I do think it's big and clever, but um, uh, no, I mean, just, you know, we did two radio edits actually, just, just in case, you know, the, the, the vaguest chance that somebody who had a radio show wanted to play something because otherwise, if they, if we hadn't done that, they couldn't have played a single track off the album, <laughs> but we did two uh, where we'd replace oh, the clean the versions of clean, clean version versions of Ducks and Jack uh, White. And yes, yeah, exactly. And but, yeah, the proper, yeah. proper catchy songs to the uh, Jenny um, that I uh, that stuck in my head for days. That song that's really, really catchy. They're all catchy. The Jack, the Jack White song uh, is that just a story you've made up in your head? Unfortunately, yes. I've never met him, but uh, I thought it wouldn't. I'd always wanted to do a story song. You know. The, the, songs with an actual narrative arc that you know tell you something that happened and it begins and with a middle and an end and yeah and that idea just popped into my head wouldn't it be amazing if you were if you was if you knew Jack White and he came around your house and you had all your mates around and he asked you to play his guitar <laughs> play your guitar in front of him how intimidating and horrible that would be uh, and how, and also how you wouldn't want him to play your guitar either, uh, because you know all your friends would see how good he was and how awful you were in comparison. So that was the idea for the song, really. That uh, you know, Jack White would be one way or the other. Jack White being in my house would be a bad thing, and uh, <laughs> the idea of him <laughs> me pretending I didn't have a guitar that he could play because and and hiding it in my car and all this sort of stuff and him running off and finding one but then suggesting that I play it that was a kind of that was the the, the turnaround uh, in that song but again once you've got the idea they it just um it just offers itself up it seems as as a a format for finishing that story off yeah yeah you saw but no I've never met him I oh, I'd love right. it I'd love him to hear the song it'd be great if he he heard it I Good think he'd get, find that funny surely Apparently he's a proper cool bloke, Jack White. You'd think he would be. Um, yeah, he seems pretty cool. I love that. Do you are you a big fan of the White Stripes? Do you like Jack White? Yeah. Do yeah, you uh, have you seen that documentary with him, Jimmy Page and the Edge? Uh what's it called? This might get loud. I have seen that, yeah. It's blooming brilliant, isn't it? I was I was already yeah, a big great. fan of him before that, but after that I thought Sweet Jesus, he's good. But um He, he uh, owns the, a record shop, doesn't he? Yeah. And he's, in, in, he's got an independent label that he's even he's released stand up on his independent label. 
Is he? Like stand-up specials. People that have just That's released, cool. like, oh, you know, CDs or, you know, he's releasing stand-up as well. God bless him. Um, uh, the other song on the album that stuck in my head for days, Dick Pick. That's one. <laughs> That's one uh, not to be humming around the house with young kids as well. <laughs> I was just humming that around the house. Click, click, dick pick in front of my kids. <laughs> my wife had to elbow me. Um, but, yeah, so, you, so you, yeah, you made the album with your cousin Jamie. So you were in a band with, you were in a band with Jamie. What, what was the name of that band again? Stigmata Club. We were called Stigmata Club. Um, both of name. us being, we were both brought up uh, Catholic and we uh, didn't enjoy that experience. So, um, you know, as 18-year-old punk rockers, we were determined to to um, stick two fingers up at, the, at, at that, um, that ludicrous church. Um, uh, other churches are available, um, but they all make you feel guilty. So Stigmata Club was the name of the, the band. And yeah, Jamie was um, the drummer to start with, and then he swapped over to become the guitarist. And we bought a drum machine. I was the bass player, and we both did backing, you know, backing vocals or main vocals. We took turns, and well, we tried various other people in the band. We did have, we had two different drummers and two other guitarists, and they always left <laughs> because I think Jamie and I were too insular, and um, because we were cousins. It was, uh, I think we were just, I think it was quite, there wasn't much space for another ego in the band. Right. But anyway, we did get, we, Jamie was that's very on, That's honest to, of you now. That's honest of you now. In yeah, I don't think I, later. I don't think I thought that at the time, but looking no. back at it, I think that was the case. So we, and also we were trying to, we were progressing from a sort of punk band and things were really, lots of different things were happening at that part of the eighties. You know, the Beastie Boys came out and people, punks like us were starting to go to kind of club nights and listen to, uh, we used to go to the, this thing called the Boiler House, which was, you know, like, like an alternative dance night. And they were playing all sorts of crossover alternative stuff that was going into dance and things like, you know, obviously New Order had brought out Blue Monday and there was oh, this, right. that, you see, things were prog- going a bit more dancey and you'd suddenly hear... Uh, acts that you thought of as being sort of an indie guitar band would suddenly have um, a, a, a drum machine a back, dance backing tune, and yeah. a dance. Yeah, da- there was a dance crossover thing happening, and that influenced us. And we started. I started slapping the bass. Um, <sighs> you know the. Um, oh my god! Yeah, I've got my bass here. I'll, I'll see if I can. I don't know if you're going to hear this. You're going to recreate a slap. I'll see if you can hear this. This is the sort of thing that I started doing with the um, with the band. You might not be here, but uh, can you hear that at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, a bit more dancey. So you, yeah. so as a band, you were you weren't really you were changing so much you weren't really even sure yourselves what you were doing so you couldn't really get someone to fit in that i imagine there was a lot of experimentation we we, we yeah. were calling it punk funk what we were doing and nice. um that why is that yeah. never put on as a well a we weren't the we weren't the only people to coin that phrase it has to be said but we thought we oh, were right, at right. the time and then we <laughs> then we realized then we realized that other people had used the same 
expression. Uh, and, you know, there were quite a few bands, like there was a band called A Certain Ratio from Manchester. I don't know if you remember them, but they no. they were doing... They were doing some of that kind of stuff, a bit of um, bass and drums led, uh, percussive, alternative music. This so this was late, late 80s? I'd, yes, this would be probably about 88, 87, 88. Uh, yeah, about around where that was time. It you grew, where was it you grew up? So this was in, we were living in Farnham at the time, Farnham in Surrey. I, I was born uh, in Aldershot, yeah. down the M3. So, you, so were you going into London a lot, gigging in London mainly? N- well, no. In most bands. of our gigs were uh, most of our gigs were uh, in the f- local village halls and that sort of thing at that level. But uh, we did start getting gigs in Brighton for some reason. We had some connections in Brighton. We did a gig at the Zap Club, which was a famous Brighton live venue at the time, which we thought was. We thought that was us. We thought we were going to get signed up that night and, you know, become yeah. a proper outfit. But of course, it's, you know, we were just a support band on a whole bill of other bands. And, you know, things don't turn out how you hope quite often in those, in the, in the pop world. But we had a lot of fun. But the, but Jamie, to get back to Jamie, he, he's carried on being a musician. He, he's got his own albums out and he's got his own little studio and we recorded it in there. And he's just really good at, taking my ideas and, and putting a gloss on them and making them sound much more professional than I imagined that they could have done. So that's yeah, why like, that album sounds like a real album, doesn't it? Yeah, like Ducks sounds like, uh, I might be wrong, tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds like sort of l- late 60s poppy kind of, yeah. you know, like yeah, slightly bit, psychedelic bit, bit late 60s, 60s production, maybe yeah. a bit of Super Tramp in there. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely got that influence, and there was a, he's really good at creating sort of or recreating sounds that you're familiar with from from old recordings. So you know, Jenny, I think sounds you know could be got a touch of the kind of Amy Winehouse uh, backing band uh, about it. You know, there's a there's a bit of that sound to it, and oh yeah, yeah there's a few Jenny's few genres that we've chainsaw, yeah. That stuck in my head for days as well. Um, right, yeah. You don't want a chainsaw so, stuck in your head, mate. <laughs> so, but when, so you were, why, so you got, you sort of got kicked out of the band. Is that right? On uh, The last band you were in, that you was the other, kicked out. The other band, yeah. So Jamie and I, our band, Stigmata Club, split up because Jamie was moving to Brighton and doing other things. Uh, and I got in another band, Notably, a, a band from that area, all the shot area, called Skipper, with yeah. my other cousin Jimbo, and we were we, we probably were going for about a year. But I was doing stand up by then, doing open spots, yeah. and I think they the band thought I had split loyalties, especially if I did gags between songs at our gigs, which I did do a couple of times. Um, did you really? You were crowbarring in the tip. Well, I can understand I was, that. Yeah, but I, lo- I love that. I remember you were trying to crowbar. We did a we did a New Year's Eve gig uh, at the West End Centre in Aldershot, and one of the guitarists snapped a string, and he said, "Sorry, I'm going to have to change this string." And I said, "Don't worry, I'll, I'll fill this gap." Stepped up to the mic and did some jokes, and the audience enjoyed it, but the band looked furious. Really? Because they wanted to be taken seriously. Well, you know, I might be exaggerating. Like you're a bit, doing but, some you know. pretty. They want to be taken seriously, <laughs> and you're doing some 
open spot level observations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, but that it was, was wasn't that... it was a taste of things to come. Yeah, that, that was the thing. Well, they made it out worse than it was apparently with um, Billy Connolly and uh, Jerry Rafferty that they were in the band together, and the the gaps between songs got longer and longer, didn't it? And they right. they made out Jerry Rafferty was annoyed by it, but I imagine he was laughing his ass off at Billy Connolly. But um, well, I it's a great it, yeah, place for us to try stand up, isn't it? Because no one's expecting a musician to be funny at all. Oh, so if you're even are, vaguely amusing, you know, you're like, well, that's he's pretty funny for a for a keyboard player, you know. Um, but no one's expecting it, so it's 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 a low bar. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame. There's, there's no way of trying material out there. It's, it's you know, it's pretty ambitious to crowbar that in to get on a music night just to get in a new bit of material, um, learn an yeah. instrument, all of that. Just try out one new bit. But um, <laughs> so you be, you were <laughs> you were uh, so then you just went full into stand up. But what what music were you into? Uh, it's an obvious question. Before you're in the band, what? Because have you got older brothers or sisters? I have two older sisters and an older brother, and Did so I was the youngest. And yeah, I, a lot of my early music. Well, actually, I say that the the very early music. I was into music quite young, like a lot younger than most people. Uh, certainly, I was the first person in my. It, well, I bought. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody when it came out. I remember going to buy the single and that came out in 74 and I was seven. So that's quite... <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's quite young, isn't it? I, I went off and bought, To buy a song, that's uh, really young. Went off... Because I used to... I think I used to get 25 pence pocket money and, and that's how roughly how much a single cost at the time. So every Saturday I went out and bought a single and I bought... Things like 10 cc's, the things we do for love. That was, I think, the, one of the very first singles I bought. And uh, so, yeah, Queen. I was into Queen. And I remember that Christmas, I asked for a Queen album for Christmas. It was my first album. And then I used to buy those kind of pop compilation albums. Yeah. And then that, my sisters and brothers started buying records. Yeah. I see you got you yeah. got your older siblings into music. In a, well, they you know, not, kind of. I think, kind of. Yeah, I just, looking back at it, I was buying records before they were. But then my brother That's was weird. coming home in 77 with all these punk singles and I uh, loved that, it. See, that's I normal. so excited by it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. These punk singles were so, uh, they just, they just hinted at this grown-up world that I had no access to. Because, you know, I was 10 years old in 1977 and I wasn't right. going to... <laughs> up to London to watch uh, these punk bands, but I, I really got excited by them. So bands like The Stranglers were huge and, and still, you know, still one of my favourite bands to this yeah, yeah. day. And um, yeah, so my brother did en- eventually have a huge influence on on my music tastes, but uh, it's just that I was going out and buying, you know, Shawaddy Waddy and Mud singles before, <laughs> before he was buying anything. That is such a funny image, you at the age of seven with your pocket money going into a <laughs> shop to buy a single. Just, I, 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 it probably wasn't, but in my head, it's in like a proper record shop or HMV, and you're saying to the bloke behind the counter, yeah, I preferred the earlier stuff. Actually, yeah, actually, it was Woolworths. Oh, it was Woolworths yeah, in yeah, Farnborough. I used to love buying music in Woolworths. They used to have this set of KTEL albums. I don't know if you, you're, you're much younger than no. me, so you won't remember this, but 
They had these albums of, uh, that were ch- much cheaper than all the other albums. And it took me years to work out why. It was because they were covers of the pop uh-huh. hits that you were actually after. So they used to have, a, they'd put a band together and cover contemporary contemporary pop tunes yeah. and record them like a greatest hits album uh, and sell them for like two quid instead of five quid. And, but they weren't the original artists. And people I have would fallen buy foul of that. It's astonishing. Yeah, no, I have fallen foul of that. Yeah. Oh, you so you feel like such a fool. But you remember... Well, this isn't Cliff ten. Richard. Yeah. <laughs> you remember at the age of 10 getting into punk. I, I thought I was into music quite early, but I think that's really young. So at 10, that must have blown your mind at 10, punk as well. What, what was your... Cause it you was had a, scary. So you All had a I Catholic thinking, upbringing. Yeah. And you're a 10-year-old listening thinking, to punk. Well, I do. I distinctly remember sitting in a caravan... Um, my parents were into caravanning. We weren't, but we had to go. And <laughs> goes, we, yeah. they also used to meet up with this other family and they would go, it was te- this is terrible, but my parents would go off to the country club, as they called it. It was basically the dodgy boozer on the campsite. And they would yeah. go off there and leave us, uh, uh, quite young children, because my older brother was, I don't know, say, uh, he was like 14 at the time. That's a responsible adult uh, in the late. Eight, he it? was the responsible adult and they would leave us with the other family's kids as well. We would sit in this um, caravan with a, and one of the other kids had, had taped the, the top 40 charts on a cassette yeah. recorder and we would sit and listen. This was about 1977, 78. And I remember listening to Peaches by the Stranglers, which is a, which is an outrageous song really about, you know, sexually excited young men looking at uh, bikini-clad young women on the beach. And the word clitoris is in the song, much to our amusement. I don't think we knew what it was, but we knew it was rude. Because he says, uh, is she she trying to get out of that clitoris? Liberation for women. That's what I preach. Preach you, man. It was so exciting. And and Hugh Cornwell goes, in the song quite a lot, which again, just sound, for our Catholic minds, just sounded so rude. We loved it. And we yeah. just played that song over and over again, sort of giggling to ourselves into this window, into this adult world, while our parents were getting smashed in the uh, country club. <laughs> uh, great days. Great days. Yeah. In a caravan. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> uh, we went camping and... Uh, and it was, and the shower blocks as well. They li- literally at that age, your parents just sent you off to shower with strangers. To shower with strangers? Shower with, with. It drops oh. out then with. Okay, shower that's with important. strangers. In a sh- yeah, that's important. In a shower block. It's called the shower yeah. block as well. The other place it's called a shower block is a prison. It should have been <laughs> a clue. True. It's true. Yeah. There was an awful lot of trust, wasn't there, in the in the seventies and eighties uh, when it came to childcare, and yeah. I think we're finding out now that, that wasn't such a good idea. Some of it has backfired massively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. so you got into punk. So your first bands were like really punk. What sort of what punk bands? You said Stranglers, the Stranglers, and then what other punk bands were you really? Well, into? it was it was really just listening to my brother's records because you know suddenly. Suddenly, my um, my Shawadi Wadi singles looked a bit lame, and um, yeah. 
I was sneaking into my brother's room and borrowing albums off him. So uh, it was things like Stiff Little Fingers and The Dickies and uh, The Dead Kennedys and, um, oh God, just lo- loads of those, sort of, obviously The Sex Pistols and The yeah. Damned and uh, 999 and Killing Joke. Killing Joke became a huge band for me and still are. I, I, I love them. I've not heard of them. You've not it's heard of Killing name. Joke? Oh, no, uh, yeah, amazing. Name. Well, it is a great name. And um, in fact, the um, comic novel of the same name, I believe, is is named after the band rather than the other way around. Uh, the Killing Joke's first album, I think, came out in 1978. And it yeah. sounds amazing to this day. If you get a chance to listen to it, 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 it just sounds like future music. And yeah. really scary too. Jazz Coleman, the lead singer, has this j- just this growl and this this presence that is unlike any other frontman I could think of. And he used to wear kind of war paint on stage, and uh, re- just nice. a really exciting band. Yeah, really loved them. But the first, I guess, the first music um, sort of scene that felt like my own instead of my big brother's was when Two Tone started. So about 79, there was a Scar revival and the two-tone scene, you know, the specials yeah, and Selector and The Beat and Madness, all of that came out. And that, that I felt, right, this is mine. By then I was 12, just about turned 13, and uh, I immediately got a skinhead haircut and Dr. Martin boots and, you know, bleached my jeans and persuaded my mother to buy me a crombie coat, you know, the long <laughs> black crombie, because... Yeah. I, I, I needed a winter coat for school and she seemed to think it was a pretty sensible looking coat. But of course, I knew it was absolutely the coolest thing. And you could pull the lining out of the top pocket to look like a red handkerchief. Yeah. And <laughs> and we all used to put white laces into our DMs to show that we were anti-Nazi skinheads and not, not the fascist variety. I, did, I didn't know that was a, I didn't know that was a that, distinction. Laces in that was Doc Martens. Laces in the, the, the Nazis used to wear red laces Right. And we used to wear white laces, uh, so that, you know, people could see at a, a, a you know glance that we were, we were, uh, we were not, we were anti-fascist. And um, that was you know, all it took. Your laces, very important when you're thirteen. Yeah. And I went to see the specials. <laughs> I went to see the specials uh, uh, at the Bracknell Leisure Centre, and it was the most terrifying night of my life to this day. It, there was How old were you constant. Then? Well, I think thirteen. Right. My parents only let me go because my older sister, who was then 15, uh, accompanied me. My sister Lisa took me and it, it was violence from the from the get-go, but long even before <laughs> the gig started. We were waiting outside Bracknell Sports Centre and because Two-Tone brought together these different factions, you know, mods and skinheads and rude boys, and none of them got on very well with each other. And no. the skin, some of the skinheads were... Uh, frankly, moronic Nazis and others were kind of into it for the for the kind of Jamaican rude boy culture. Uh, yeah. And then there was the mods who, you know, were wearing the parkas and the suits. And it was a, there was just carnage outside this gig as all these different factions turned up and started punching each other. And, um, you know, they, they seemed like adults to me. They were probably about 17, but I was 13 and that felt... Yeah. Felt like I was in a dangerous place. And the gig had to be stopped about five times while the band fought various members of the audience. 
It was amazing. Jesus. What an amazing experience, I've, yeah. I've never been to a gig. I've never been to a gig like that as an adult. I can't imagine it that. It was so common. Or... It was so common. I mean, from all the punk gigs I went to as a, as a teenager, there was always a fight would break out. Uh, two songs in, suddenly the we'd all be chicken dancing anyway, uh, you know, that kind of slam dancing. And yeah. so sometimes you couldn't tell if it was a fight or not, but every now and then suddenly the <laughs> band would stop. The band would stop and say, right, break that up. And you'd suddenly turn around and there'd be four guys kicking seven shades of shit out of each other. And that just was a common thing. You know, violence was so much more regular in the 70s and 80s than it is now, thankfully. But um, yeah, it was scary times. I often spent half my times at gigs thinking I might get beaten up any moment, you know. I'm so glad that's over. Yeah, no, the, I can't imagine the gigs I've, you know, the gigs I've been to, it's very much more working together in a crowd surfing kind of communal event, not beating the shit out of each other. So, so sometimes <laughs> you'd be looking at people thinking, them two, them two are, they're into this song, they are loving this, and they'd be beating yeah. the crap out of each other. Yeah. So you were 13, yeah. how old are your, your, your kids now? They are 14, just about to turn 15 next week. Oh, can you imagine them going to that now? What do, what music are they into? They, 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 well, I've given them a good education, I think. So they uh, they like quite a lot of the music that I like. So they like a lot of indie, alternative and punk music. Um, my daughters are in a band called Scouts. So Lola plays oh, really? drums and Evie plays guitar. And at the, the moment they're just doing covers, but they're covering bands like Arctic Monkeys and, um, nice. you know, uh, c- quite cool stuff. Um, yeah, I'm quite, quite proud of them. Yeah, you should be proud of that. I like, they've, not asked, they've not asked you to join, no? I keep volunteering to come in and play bass, but they look at me like I've uh, just yes. said... I feel awkward. I feel awkward hearing about it. I've got to be honest. Yeah, no, they they don't want their dad in the band, and I don't get that. But what can you do? Yeah, but yeah, I can't, I'm thirteen. Going to gig like see my first my first ever gig was very mundane. It was uh, going to see Bob Dylan with my dad, which sounds pretty well, cool when you say it like that. But that was it, Wembley Arena, miles away. Couldn't even see him. And it was sat surrounded by old men that had a list of every Bob Dylan gig they'd been to, and they were telling us about it like train spotters. Yeah, it's very still. Much you got to see you got to see Bob. I saw Bob I mean, Dylan at the age of I think I was 13, 14, I think, or something like that. And was it one of those that, gigs he does where he hardly plays anything that anyone likes? Or yeah, it was. Did he play? Well, did he play some of the it hits? Was one of them, and you just you just heard proper. Bob Dylan geeks all around you complaining the whole way through. Going, oh, he's lost it. He's lost his voice. Voice is gone. It's gone. Judas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Old school. Judas. It's over, mate. All right, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah. So you, yeah. So you were. You were in. Uh, and then when? When did you? What age were you when you first in a band? I mean, when did? When did you start learning to play the guitar? <clears throat> I think I asked I just, for a bass guitar for Christmas when I was 12. So why, why bass yeah. straight away at 12? Because, because I l- really got excited about the idea of guitars. I didn't know much about them, but I knew that, you know, I've been watching top of the pop since I was 
an amoeba, you know, and yeah. uh, guitars just looked cool and bass guitars only have four strings. So that seemed <laughs> to be the, a good place well, to it's start. It's got to be easier. It's got to be easier. <laughs> I reckon that's why most people learn the bass because it's got four strings. I didn't even know they were lower, you know, I didn't know they were the, the lower register. I just thought four strings, that's, that's the one for me. So I got my very first three-quarter length bass guitar, Starburst, um, like a Fender copy. Um, right. Very much a copy because it was very cheap. But it was my but Christmas present. Uh, so what would that be? when About, uh, yeah, when I, when I was 12, yeah. And um, my dad made me a made me some kind of weird amp he cobbled together from a, from a PA system, from a scout hut or something. And... Uh, that was that was how I you know that was how I started playing the bass, and I got a band together almost immediately, and we were called Sus, uh, which was at the time there was this uh, the Sus Laws, which is uh, I don't know if you remember, but the police were allowed to pull people over and search them if they were suspected of uh, right. you know carrying a weapon or being a part of a crime, and it was very controversial at the time and often used on young black men, <laughs> so. We were reading all about that kind of stuff in, you know, in the magazines that we would buy. So, uh, yeah, we were trying to be a punk band and we were 12, 12 years old. Jesus, that's uh, quite called... politically aware as a 12-year-old. I can't well, imagine I that conversation. Precocious, I think. Yeah. I, I wrote songs. I wrote songs called, like, I wrote one called Kill Ronald Reagan Before He Kills You. Uh, At what age? <laughs> About 13 yeah, or I, I think about 12 or 13, yeah. Kill Ronald Reagan before he kills you. <laughs> Didn't even so know who the Prime Minister the, of England was at 13. Yeah, well, this was when Ronald Reagan was, was you know, President of America, and we thought that was the worst it could ever get. <laughs> oh, yeah. You look, fond, halcyon fond days. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember when, I remember clearly when we thought, can't get worse than Bush. That seemed like the lowest of the low, didn't it? Yeah, but um, now he seems like a, a top geezer in comparison. He seems like a funny uncle now, doesn't he? <laughs> but, um, I love the I love the thought of that. You have a, have you, so how many were you in this band that you had this? You had a discussion. What name are we going with? Nothing to do with trying to attract uh, girls or anything. It's like, have you read about this uh, law with the police where they can <laughs> just search black men? Even that's what do we should go with. Chaps. The, the the drummer wasn't into punk at all. He was a really smooth kid. I can't remember his name, uh, but his he had a lovely expensive drum kit, and he just wanted to play in, in in a band. And his dad would bring him every Saturday afternoon. His dad would drive him over, and with this full drum kit, uh, uh, and unload the whole kit and put it in into. We used to practice in my mum and dad. My mum and dad ran a day nursery for kids. Um, right. So we had this building at the back of our house that was essentially a nursery, you know, and a, a, for for little preschool kids. But it was a great space to practice. So we would set up in there, and um, so this bloke's dad would set up his expensive drum kit, and he would bang away for an hour or two, and then his dad would come and pick him up again, and pack up his 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 beautiful pristine drum kit and put it in his car and drive him off and I don't think he liked anything we were doing he didn't like punk or anything uh, not that what we were doing you know had any level of credibility but um, it was a noise that's for sure and the other member of the band who I, th I think was, might have been another cousin at that point I have a lot of cousins Catholics you see 
He, um, oh, yeah, I think he just had a little Casio keyboard and we were rubbish. We were absolutely awful, but it was good fun. And, um, it, you know, it was a fairly early start to be writing, writing songs. And I wrote lots of angry political songs at the age of 12. God knows why. I don't know what I was trying to, <laughs> who I thought I was, but, um, yeah, wrote another one about, you know, war, you know, an anti-war song. And I seem to remember it went thousands of acres of plain white crosses. They fought, they died, but did they count their losses for 100 yards of dirt? It cost 100 lives, 100 years, 100 tears, 100 widowed wives. Wow. Wow. That 12. is deep for a 12, 13 year old, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Well, I was in, yeah, I was in CND. You could do a whole album or show. Of your twelve-year-old Ben Norris material, do it <laughs> like you know, do it re- really straight and serious. Do and it earnest. really earnest, earnest, yeah. yeah. From the point of view of a twelve-year-old, this is how that's hilarious. It's quite sweet, really, isn't it? Yeah, you could be. I mean, you know, some twelve-year-olds' diaries are funny, but no one was writing songs that deep at twelve. <laughs> wow. But it sounds like that drummer was literally using you as a rehearsal studio. Definitely. He he didn't like what we were doing at all. But his dad was obviously so keen for him to be a drummer that he was putting putting all the the yards in, driving him around. And I think he might have actually been in two or three other bands at the same time. But, you know, when you're a young musician, that's what you need to do, isn't it? You just play anywhere and everywhere to get the the hours in. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they were... As a family, they were mugging you right off. They're taking the piss. <laughs> yeah. I like the thought of you rehearsing surrounded by kids' drawings and, and a sand yeah. pit and everything. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly what it was and, like. Tiny little yellow chairs. <laughs> yeah. And uh and so yeah, and then you and then then you were in more serious bands uh, as a teenager. So what, what so that would be the you'd say that was the music of your generation was um um, the specials and madness and that would you would you say that was kind of the music you grew up on? Yeah, the well, I was I was saying, wasn't I that the after kind of being um, getting the foundations of punk from my big brother, the yeah. it was the two tone movement that was the first that movement like that was musical yours. movement that felt like it was was mine that I could really own it. And um, I went out and got my my head shaved as soon as I possibly could. My mum hated it, but. Well, I loved it. I've got to say, from the point of view now as an adult, uh, they, they never mention this with skinheads, but um, I know you well and you've got a lovely head of hair. I've always said that <laughs> about you. It seemed now, even in retrospect, it feels like a real shame. But, um, <laughs> so you have full Doc Martens and skinheads. I, I, didn't I see recently on Facebook, didn't you give your, you've, your daughter's got short hair? You gave her a skinhead. Yeah, well, Lola has been experimenting a lot with her hair and she had a yeah she in the first lockdown yeah she, she asked if she could have a skinhead haircut and yeah we shaved her head and and she you went say the we. Full, well on, me say we me with right. the with the approval of my wife there um, it is but, there it is yeah. wow and she went for the full you know she went for the full look you know the ben, the ben sherman button down shirt and the jeans and the dms She's already grown out of that, so she's she's gone through two more looks since then. She grew, grew out the skinhead and spiked it up and then bleached it, so she went for the full kind of uh, early 80s punk look. And then and now she's dyed it brown again because the school got really angry that she'd bleached her hair, so she's had to dye it back to, to brown. 
and um, yeah, she's she's really experimenting with her looks quite a lot. She's she's into, yeah, into fashion. Through lockdown, she's gone through like how is your lockdown? She's gone through musical genres. She has lockdown. definitely, yeah, yeah. I'd like, I'd like. Did you take that phone call from the school, or was it just an email? It wasn't a call. It she came back with a note, right, saying that she had to sort it out. So yeah, reluctantly, and after a couple of weeks of resistance, we acquiesced. Wow, isn't that weird though? You think of like you know kids of your, you and your brother's age, doing that kind of thing and angering parents in school, and now. As a parent, you're encouraging your child to have a skinhead and getting her yeah. in trouble with school. Well, I just really proud. like the look. I just really like the look, and it suited her. And I did see the photo. She did yeah. the proper cool. <laughs> but like I said, she's already moved on. You know, she's she's moved on. I think she's going to change. She's a bit Bowie-esque. She 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 gets tired after about two or three months of a look and wants something else. And I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, having a go at you for being a square dad, going, oh, dad, <laughs> punk, punk and skinhead. That is that's so March, April time. Oh yeah, that's, er- yeah, exactly. that's early lockdown genre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, uh, what do you still um, do? You still buy albums or are you Spotify now? Well, I still download albums and pay for them if you know what i mean and i but i had started to i had started to use a subscription service in fact google play which is just this week disappeared i don't know if you know anything about this but it's really annoying no. google play have shut down and handed over all their stuff to youtube music so you have i had to go in and find a way of getting all the albums that i bought and and downloading them onto another app so i could keep them which is one of the things I really hate about that odd kind of cloud world of music being up in the cloud. And, you know, it used to be you'd go off to the shop and buy a physical thing and you owned it. And now you, but you can buy an album and you don't know if you do own it or where it is, or is it on your phone or is it on your laptop or is it in the cloud or has it disappeared altogether? And there's something disconcerting about that. And well, I miss the album artwork and all of the, all the, plus sides of a physical thing so a few years ago i did i am one of those guys who went and re-bought a record player and started buying vinyl again and i do i'd forgotten the joys of vinyl i know a lot of people slag people off for being you know musical uh, snobs with with the vinyl but it does have a deep and rich sound that can't be replicated and if you've been listening to mp3s for 20 years like i have you forget how good vinyl sounds or even how good a cd sounds straight off the cd through a good system it sounds better and warmer and more uh real than than uh, mp3s do well we we've we've talked a lot about being luddites because of the uh you know hour and a half setup it's taken us all to get this (laughs) technical issues yeah with laptops but I'm I'm proper luddite with that well I remember I bought a few songs on my phone I don't know what it was on can't remember what it was on, and then just bought a new phone. Had to upgrade my phone, and all that music went. It wasn't that much, but from then on, I thought oh, I'm not doing that again. I'm still purely CDs. Well, I think that's cool. Did you hear that story of somebody? I can't remember what he bought. Like had a massive album collection on like uh, on the cloud or whatever it was, and then when he died, his family wanted it, and they can't. You're not allowed to pass that on. 
That's so weird. It's like he died and so did his music. Yeah, it was his. He doesn't own it. It's like he's renting it. It's not like an like you say, like a vinyl collection in the loft of your dad's that you can look through. It's gone with him. So his family need to track down a sort of um, musical Derek Acora and see if they can <laughs> yeah. see if he could channel the uh, the record collection out I'm, of. The, I'm getting something. I'm get. I think I think it's Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, it's coming through now. It's coming through. It's it's the skids into the valley. <laughs> Prefer the earlier stuff. Yeah, yeah. Your um, so your record collection. Uh, you start? Did you? Well, your your record collection must be massive. If you started at seven buying Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> yeah. must be yeah. Although huge. I don't have a lot of my. Uh, the, the singles and that I bought when I was that young I, have all disappeared. But yeah. I've got almost everything I bought from probably the early 80s onwards. I've still got all of that. Um, Lovely. Apart from some of my two-tone records, which who that, that I gave away. This, this was really weird. When I got back into punk, so there was sort of two punk uh, seasons for me. There was the my brother's punk. And then yeah. the two, I got into two tone, and then I got into anarcho punk bands like Crass and right. Flux of Pink Indians. I don't know if uh, I don't know if you've heard of any of these bands, but they were very political and very angry, and you know, sort of very kind of anarcho and vegetarian and yeah, uh, anti like the stuff. system. Very very myself and very very exciting. So suddenly, when I got into that, I kind of rescinded all my two-tone and I gave a lot of it to my cousin Martin who's now the famous actor Martin Freeman do you, do, do, do you know his work I've heard of him Martin yeah. Freeman he's reasonable <laughs> so when you though. saw him on the office all you were thinking was he's fucking he's got my selector album, album. yeah <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes he's got he's got a lot of my old two-tone and I thought one day he'll give it back but he never did but um oh, but yeah because he came to stay at my house completely he came to stay at my house when he was, I don't know, I, so I was, I guess, 15, 16 by then, and he was 12, 11 or 12, and I gave him a number of uh, my, well, Bad Manners. That was the other, I gave him my Bad Manners albums. Oh, my God. And he took those great. Bad Manners, and he took it on, he never returned your albums. Yeah, exactly. He's, he, had, he showed his Bad Manners, mate. Yeah, um, so you, but so you kind of, um, so you gave him a bit of a music... That kind of music education, but you, came, like, you gave him I that. You've got to listen to this, that kind of thing. I definitely think I t influenced him a bit, but he's yeah. consequently become a much bigger muso than me. I mean, his record collection is absolutely enormous. I mean, he's and goes into lots of obscure sort of uh, soul artists you've never heard of, and you know, he's, right. he's absolutely train spotter of music. He is and. Uh, you know, he does BBC Six Music. He does whole shows of stuff that you've never heard. So, and and albums. He's got albums out of him. And is it Keb Darge, the the DJ? He and Keb, I think, have put put albums oh, yeah. out together and of, of compilations. You know, of, of stuff they like. So, yeah, but you were you yeah, were the influence of that. That's good. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. So you've but you've got a lot of still got a lot of your out. Do you? So if your kids, you've. Have they gone through your stuff? That must be like a treasure chest, some of that stuff for your like kids at their age. Yeah, although not as much as I thought they would, because my daughter Eve bought a record player and 
she I said, well, I've got tons of vinyl. If you're really careful with it, you can listen to it. What but she's she's she hasn't really dipped into it that much, which is perhaps she will in the next year or two. But at the moment, yeah. she's got her three or four albums on vinyl that she loves and she just plays those. But I think yeah. probably we all were a bit like that at that age. I think you, it was years before I realised how good the Beatles were. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I knew who they were when I was a kid, but I didn't give a toss about them until I was in my 20s, probably. You know? Well, I know what you mean. You've got to sort of discover it. I had that with the Smiths. Like, yeah. I clearly knew they were amazing, but you have to discover them for yourself. If people keep telling you, you're like, yeah, 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 all right. But yeah, the Beatles. I had, I um, I watched that uh, when the Beatles released Anthology. They released like the um, and they had the documentary on the telly, and they released their first single in 25 years or something. Um, um, free as a bird. Remember that on the telly as a 15 year old or something. Like, so that was it. I was blew my mind and I watched all of that and was obsessed with the Beatles to the point it ruined me getting into music of my own generation, really. Because I listened to nothing else, couldn't get past I it. I bet when you first heard them, you thought, God, this band sounds like Oasis. <laughs> well, actually, that, that was kind of the that was the thing. I was so into the Beatles, it took me longer to get into Oasis when they were out and massive and everyone was into them. And then uh, because I was too into the Beatles and then I got into Oasis just after everyone else and just before Be Here Now where it all went wrong. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, um, their obsession with the Beatles overtook them, didn't it? Because they found it more and more difficult to disguise what they were nicking from the beginning, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think Noel Gallagher really tried to disguise that he was nicking it. No, <laughs> to be not. fair, with him, I think he was pretty. Yeah, I know. But um, so yeah, you did get into the Beatles until. Well, how did you get into the Beatles? How did you get into the Beatles then? Well, I'd always heard them because you know I was born in 1967, so I guess they were in my. They're just everywhere in popular culture. So wow, you so just when you were in your car, them. when you were in your car, there was like yeah. a revolver was blaring. Yeah. I sh well, actually, my parents weren't that cool, so they probably didn't have revolver. But I would have been hearing bits and bobs. You just hear it, don't you, on the radio? And, yeah. and you grow up, it's just sort of in your in your psyche. But uh, I didn't think they, I didn't realise how cool they were. You know, I think that's the other thing. As a kid, you just, you think of the the mop tops and the, the silly jackets and the screaming girls. And I just thought yeah. that's not very cool. And, you know, much later on, you, you listen to Sgt. Pepper's and, and realise, oh, my God, this changed music forever. And, you know, still still to this day, you know, you can put that album on and, and marvel at what a piece of art that is. You know, it's an amazing piece of art that, you know, very few other bands have achieved that level of um, original thought, I guess. They were making yeah. brand new sounds. It's still used yeah. as a. It's used as that like that phrase, isn't it? Now it's like you know, the sort Sergeant of Pepper of albums, the benchmark. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. So um, you uh, you've still got loads of vinyl. You've just where, how long ago did you buy a record player again? I guess about five years ago, five or six years ago. And the first thing I did was um, repurchase albums that I'd only ever owned on CD. Um, 
and one or what, two what? that I'd only ever had as downloads, you know, because I wanted to hear them on vinyl. See, I've, so, I've got a weird thing of that that I I don't I I like buying albums on vinyl that were probably recorded to be on vinyl, but the ones that were recorded. How do you feel about that? You know, the ones that were recorded, say, in the nineties, to be that were planned to be on CD or tape. That you know, they never even considered it being on vinyl. A lot of them. Oh, I suppose you're right. They they don't have that heritage, but there is still something happening when you when the needle hits the it hits the vinyl that uh, it's for me. It just you feel like you're picking out the instruments, and with a good yeah. recording, it feels like you're in the recording studio listening to you know the bass guitars over there and the drums over there and the keyboards over here, and it's it's it sort of separates all the instruments out and then brings them back in together in a way that. Uh, perhaps you know it might be my imagination but that's how it sounds to me that it feels like I'm he- I'm hearing the musicians playing and so I think it, it's always good to hear vinyl but most of the albums I bought were were, were recorded to be on vinyl in the first place or cassette tape I mean. I mean I had loads yeah. of cassette tapes oh, so you've changed my opinion now I've, I've been a bit staunch of that opinion that's a good point <laughs> The weird thing is when CDs first came out, they were sold to us as the most uh, uh, modern and brilliant sounding of all music formats. You know, it was sold to us as far better than the crackly vinyl that we had. And, um, and it, what, and and I remember that, that, that thing of putting a CD in the very first time I bought myself a CD player and pressing play and not hearing anything until the first, bit of music started and that being mind-blowing in itself because we were used to hearing either a cassette tape starting up with that weird sound or putting a record on and hearing a few crackles or just a pop before the first you know what I mean before the first bar of the music but CD you'd press play and the first thing you would hear is the first piece of the music and it was amazing just that blew our minds which is quite funny. That's how it should be. But now you really nostalgically hark back to, I want a bit of crackle. Just, well, you just know, a, a, lot bit of of crackle. a lot of hip hop uh, deliberately puts crackle o- over the, over the tune, like with the samples, just to add that. Yeah. I love of, that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, talking of hip hop, I didn't mention this yet, but uh, I, st- every now and then I still have to go back and listen to, um, Black Sunday, the Cypress Hill album. Uh, are you familiar with it? I know, I know Cypress Hill, and but I'm not really into hip hop. But I do like, I do like it when I hear it. But I don't, I haven't bought any. But oh you, have you been it's, really into hip hop? Well, I was just reminded of it from the crackle because there's quite a bit of crackle on that, deliberately put there, and it's just an amazing album. It's just that if you, if you, you know, every now and then when I talk to people about hip hop, um, that era. That early '90s era of hip hop was some of the best, I think. And Cypress Hill—it's <laughs> just—it's funny, it's dark, it's got some scary uh, lyrics on it, and it's also got some hilarious lyrics on it. But it's just—it's uh, just—it's just beautiful. It's just a wonderful piece of work. So I, if you've not heard it, uh, I'd love you to go and listen to that. That is one of the that is one of the things that I want to do on this podcast is get at least one good recommendation from people to try and because uh, I can be quite narrow minded with music I admit it I can be fairly 
If it's not got a guitar from the 90s, I'm not interested. But uh, I try not to be, and I try. I should try and branch out more, and that could be my gateway drug in a hip-hop. A bit of Cypress yeah, Hill. do it, bro. You've educated me. So that, and buy some vinyl of stuff that was meant to be on tape or CD, it's still worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I've... Uh, taken from this podcast and also uh if anyone else wants to listen to them albums definitely give that a go cypress hill black sunday but an album you definitely definitely need to listen to uh is your album ben norris moral vacuum it's brilliant yes i really like the album cover as well you must have been chuffed with that i mean we've all got in our head if you had your own album how cool you'd make the cover look yeah, you've nailed it with that. It's brilliant. Well, do you know what? I had a real bit of luck um, one night when we were doing the Edge, uh, the Cutting Edge at the Comedy Store. Yeah. Um, these two slightly drunk fifty-five-year-old blokes burst into the dressing room after the show. This doesn't sound and... lucky immediately, does it? <laughs> and Sounds them, annoying, but yeah, but it would have been annoying. But they were they were quite nice guys, and they just wanted to chat because one of them knew another member of the team. But his mate was, um, I got chatting to his mate and he was a rock photographer. And I thought, I must get this bloke's phone number. And I took his number. And and then when I was doing the album cover, I remembered that I had this bloke's number. And I rang him and he lived in um, uh, Peckham Rye, which isn't far from where I live. And I basically talked him into doing photography for my album cover. I said, look, I've got no money or hardly anything. Um, would you take my picture? And he's taken, you know, he's done Bowie and Sting and, you know, you name Prince. He had a whole list of big, big, big stars that he's photographed. And um, he agreed if I would, you know, come to his house and uh, make love with him. No, uh, (laughs) (laughs) no, if I would come to his house and, you know, he didn't have to do much. So I'd had the idea for the album cover of uh, Moral Vacuum and I took my Henry Hoover and my guitar with me to his to his uh, house, and he'd set up a little studio in his lounge, and that was the picture that we t- we took loads of pictures, but we chose that picture of me with the guitar looking like it's plugged into a Henry Hoover, and yeah. it just he, you know he just gave it that look of a real a proper picture, and it just made the album cover look look really good. So I was very pleased with that. Yeah, really pleased. Yeah, with that. it does look out. proper. It does look proper rock star photo as well i don't know how there must be something he does but he's nailed it with that That yeah yeah he must have been chuffed with that so yeah the album cover looks proper cool uh and it's like you know you all you're open for of a an album from a comedian is it's funny and it's definitely like really really funny but proper proper catchy tunes if you're not li- want to listen to an album for it to be funny this is still i mean if you're gonna waste your time and start writing about love you could do that but <laughs> I suggest you don't do that. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, definitely, definitely buy this album, people who have not got it. Uh, could you just go to your website and get it, bennorris.co.uk? Yeah, there's a link There's a link there or on my Twitter, Benny underscore Norris. Um, there's, there's a link uh, on the Twitter actually to all the different ways you can listen to it and places you can buy it either as a download or as a real CD. And if you buy the real CD, uh, I sign it and post it to you myself and it'll have just a little bit of covid on the envelope but don't worry just don't open it for a week after it arrives yeah (laughs) self-isolate the album for up to 14 days and then you're gonna have yourself a good listen thanks ben um 
Thanks, mate. Good luck with this podcast. It's a really good idea. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for having me on, mate. Loved it. Well, I, I don't know how you hang up now. A podcast from producer paul.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.